Welcome to the Museum of Femininity, a podcast where I, Charlotte Appleyard, discuss random topics of interest that relate to social history, art and material culture through a female lens. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the Museum of Femininity. In this episode, we will be completing our marriage series with an analysis of marriage in the Victorian era. I think this will be a fascinating topic to cover as this was a period steeped in gender norms and high morals that often oppressed women. However, in contrast to this, we see the foundation of the women's suffrage movement and with the flourishing economy and rising middle classes, more employment opportunities for women that may challenge some of the traditional notions of femininity. We will be discussing the role of marriage in society its purpose and how women felt about it, as well as how marriage differed among the classes. We will also be exploring how marriage has changed and what it can tell us about the role of women in society. The Victorian era spanned from 1837 to 1901, a tremendous stretch of time which saw much change and innovation. It is of course marked by the reign of Queen Victoria, who in a sense is an important figure in this episode, as she encapsulated the image of a devoted wife and popularised many wedding traditions that still exist today. At 18, Victoria came to the throne and oversaw a period of huge growth for Britain, who had recently won a war with France and was continuing to spread its influence across the world. This would have mounted huge pressure on Victoria's shoulders, as domestically there was much unrest, with rural unemployment rising, the urban areas were filling up with country people looking for work, leading to overcrowding and and appalling conditions. In the government there were few reforms, but those that did exist focused on the treatment of Catholics, how the church was run and the way poverty was dealt with. Political change soon came, under the leadership of Sir Robert Pill, the Tories became the Conservative Party and the Liberals rose up from the old aristocratic Whig Party. For both parties, low taxation and minimal state interference were watchwords. The reluctance to get involved led to England avoiding the turbulence that swept over the continent during the Age of Reform that culminated into years of revolutions. In contrast, all England saw was the Chartist movement, which aimed to reform the electoral system. Sadly, this was quashed by the small elite, who did not wish for people beyond their circle to have the right to vote. In the 1840s, there were poor harvests, which led to famine across the British Isles, the worst which was in Ireland from 1845 to 49 when over a million people died and two million emigrated. Much of this was fuelled by the British government's non-interference. This caused a ripple of shock everywhere. Britain was thought to be prosperous, so the fact this happened was difficult for people to believe. Change became accelerated with the invention of the railway and electric telegraph, which underpinned Britain's economic success. Another huge signifier of British dominance in the 19th century was the Great Exhibition in 1851, 
a sprawling exhibition of global ingenuity in art and technology, which sat beneath the palatial crystal palace. Britain won many prizes for engineering. Their artistic output, however, was gaudy, and thus as highly regarded. This also highlights how the empire was perceived, and Britain's place as its head, as the hallmark of a truly advanced civilization. At this time, colonisation was a part of national policy, Britain and other European powers scrambling to take control of numerous countries in Africa and other locations around the world. This created a vast empire of free trade, which led to British investors dominating the foreign markets. Although the colonisation of India and places in Africa caused immense oppression, at the time it was a source of pride for many British people. Many fashion trends were influenced by these cultures as well, for example the paisley print, which came from India. The continued national obsession with tea. Some features in architecture, art and interior design all bore symbolic hints from a variety of styles and cultures. The empire inspired trends at home, but also inspired people to travel and even emigrate. It was so much easier to be mobile and to explore the world, which is something that had become accessible to many instead of simply the aristocracy. During the Victorian era, there was also progress in education and advancements in science, engineering, medicine and technology. Such leaps in scientific understanding often resulted in a crisis of religious faith. Yet, ironically, alongside these changes, the 19th century saw a huge burst of church building and the founding of religious charitable institutions. We see the birth of the temperance movement and more conservative attitudes. As I have stated, this was a long period of time which saw a huge transformation. Due to this, it is difficult to summarise the era, as there were so many conflicting views. People were extremely religious, but there was also a fascination with the occult, for example. Gender roles were becoming more defined, with the image of the meek and dutiful wife being glorified in art and literature. Yet this period also saw stirrings of the women's suffrage movement, as well as more job opportunities for women. There are many other examples of such contradictions, but all in all, I hope I have painted a broad enough picture of the Victorians to help contextualise our next discussion about the role of love and marriage and what this can tell us about life for women in the 19th century. Marriage was considered an inevitability for most women. It was an established institution that was a societal norm. To not marry and to live life as a spinster would have been a deeply undesirable path to take and an unusual one. Marriage was a Christian ceremony and something that was biblically promoted. In a time full of religious fever, people would have wished to fulfil their God-given role as a wife and mother. There were also practical reasons why a woman might wish to marry. For one thing, the idea of running her own home may have been appealing, to leave the confines of the family home and have some independence and freedom in decision-making. As well as this, an unmarried daughter living at home would have been somewhat of a financial burden for her family and there would have been pressure for her to make an advantageous marriage, particularly in upper-class families. Middle-class women, too, 
would have been pushed into this direction. The alternative for these women would have been to find some sort of employment, like becoming a governess. Similarly, working class women may have wanted to marry to improve their situation and get out of poverty or avoid going into domestic service. In more cases, a working class woman may already be working, as they would have left school young and left home around the age of 14. In the 19th century, she might be working as a maid or cook, perhaps would be working in a shop, as this was a period that saw a boom in retail and more ready-to-wear garments being on sale. This is partly because of advancements in technology. It was easier to mass-produce products. This saw a greater need for shop workers, who were often women. In these environments, poorer girls would have more opportunities to meet people, whereas working as a servant would be much stricter. As well as the practical and societal reasons for getting married, we must also not forget that many hoped to, and did indeed, marry for love. The 19th century saw something of a revival in medieval imagery, and this idea of courtly love was prevalent in poetry and art, particularly the art of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, whose own passionate love affairs echoed the melodrama in their artworks, which often included their muses, who they revered like an obsession. We will now discuss what a wedding was actually like in the Victorian era. Firstly, it is worth establishing that the process of getting engaged was a lengthy one and always led to marriage. This was not a time where you could comfortably and respectably cohabit with a partner. Upper-class women would go through a coming-out process around the age of 17 or 18, when they are presented to the Queen. The ceremony established during the reign of George III most closely associated with Queen Charlotte, who created the dress code, which had the young debutantes donning white gowns with ostrich feathers adorning their hair. Following this, there would be a series of balls and events that marked the society season. Many girls would have their own balls in their honour, and in many ways this was like an announcement that she is ready to be courted and married off giving a strange sense of girls being paraded in front of bachelors who can have their pick. It was, of course, a great point of pride to be engaged before the end of the season and snapped up. The courting would be formal and chaperoned. Something similar may have happened with middle-class girls, but more informal settings, and the parents were, of course, heavily involved, perhaps even having a steer on the match or outright making the match themselves. As we have covered in past episodes in this series, poorer people may have had more freedom to marry for love. In the Victorian era, we start to see the traditional image of a bride dressed in white finally emerge. Fashion silhouettes changed drastically throughout the 19th century, but despite this, we start to see certain fabrics being utilised in the wedding dress and this remained consistent throughout. Such fabrics would include gauze, tulle, lace, silk, linen, or cashmere. Although there had been instances of white wedding dresses in the past, it did not really become popular until Queen Victoria's marriage to Prince Albert in 1841, which saw her wearing a white gown trimmed with Honiton lace. Victoria was also quite a visible monarch, unlike her mysterious godlike predecessors, and her image was published widely, 
which would have made her fashion choices easier to replicate and request. Now the colour white has connotations with the idea of virginity for its purity, but traditionally this colour was not specially associated with this concept, unlike the colour blue, which has close ties with the Virgin Mary. However, it is not impossible that over time it would take on this meaning, as generally a bride was supposed to be virginal, although by today's standards this is a deeply archaic principle. Dress silhouettes changed dramatically over the century, seeing in the wide crinoline skirts of the mid-century to the elegant bustle shape in the late 1800s, but wedding gowns tended to retain similar aspects from the colour to the inclusion of a veil. A wedding trousseau was also an important contribution to a bride's wardrobe. This was essentially an assortment of new clothes to help launch the bride into her new role as a wife. Most people married in their mid-twenties in an Anglican ceremony. However, if you were not a member of the Church of England, you could also marry. The Marriage Act of 1836 made it possible to have a civil ceremony, which allowed non-conformist Christians and Catholics to marry according to their own rights, as long as they did it in a registered place of worship and with a civil registrar in attendance. From 1856, non-Christian places of worship could also be registered for marriage. So the idea of a marriage being a solely Christian practice was beginning to fade somewhat. Marriage often took place seasonably, the time of which often depended on working situations. This meant late spring and summer became popular and in agricultural areas, weddings were often timed with the agricultural calendar. For instance, July was unpopular, but October was very popular, probably due to the harvest time. Wedding hours were extended to 3pm to reflect the working hours of the lower classes, before you had to marry before noon. Sundays presented the only day of leisure for workers, and was the most unusual day for a wedding particularly in urban areas. Only in the middle of the century did workers get an extra half day off each week, which caused Saturdays to become the most popular day to marry. A Victorian wedding ceremony would have been similar to a wedding today. It was common for them to be held in the bride's parish. The church itself would be adorned with flowers and the bells would ring to commemorate the happy day. The couple signed the parish register and rings were exchanged. The bride likely would walk to the church if she lived close by, or if she was wealthier would arrive in a wedding carriage. Following the ceremony, the bride and groom would leave and be bathed by a shower of rice grain or bird seed thrown by their guests, which was a sign of fertility. Following the ceremony, there would be a party, which included a dinner and often dancing. This was followed by the happy couple going on a honeymoon which could have involved visiting family or going abroad. Although for most women, marriage was something they aspired to achieve or simply assumed they would. We do start to see women challenging these notions. For example, Charlotte Despard, writing in the 1850s, said, quote, It was a strange time, unsatisfactory, full of ungratified aspirations. I longed ardently to be of some use in the world, but as we were girls, 
with a little money and born into a particular social position, it was not thought necessary that we should do anything but amuse ourselves until the time when the opportunity of marriage came along. Better any marriage at all than none, a foolish old aunt used to say. The women of the well-to-do classes were made to understand early that the only door open to a life at once easy and respectable was that of marriage. Therefore, she had to depend upon her good looks according to the ideals of the men of her day, her charm, her little drawing room arts. Such feelings continue to be felt by women, particularly with the founding of the women's suffrage movement. In one 1867 example, Lydia Becker made a speech at a meeting of the Manchester suffrage movement that said this on the subject of marriage, quote, I think that the notion that the husband ought to have the headship or authority over his wife is the root of all social evils. Husband and wife should be co-equal in a happy marriage. There is no question of obedience. I couldn't agree more. And it's quite refreshing to see that these ideas were starting to come to the surface as early as the 1860s. And I think it's important to not generalise about the way people saw this subject. There were many different ideas and voices at that time. Many people approved of marriage and they wanted to be the ideal wife and mother. And then you had other women who sort of hungered for more and were not satisfied in that role alone and being boxed in. It's interesting that there is such a clash of ideas, particularly when you consider how restricted the traditional ideas of a perfect wife was. Generally women were expected to be ideal and ignorant, they did not interfere with manly pursuits and were in control of the household and raising a family. The writer Charles Petrie outlined what a Victorian man was looking for in a wife. Quote, Innocence was what he demanded from the girls of his class, and they must not only be innocent, but also give the outward impression of being innocent. White muslin, typical of the virginal purity, clothes many a heroine with the delicate shades of blues and pinks next in popularity. The stamp of masculine approval was placed upon ignorance of the world, meekness, lack of opinions, general helplessness and weakness, in short, recognition of female inferiority in the male. Women were absolutely considered inferior to men in terms of their role in the marriage, but also legally. For instance, the husband would essentially own everything the wife owned, and in the case of a divorce, there were many inequalities which made it difficult for women to divorce a man. A man could divorce his wife for one instance of adultery, but a woman could only obtain a divorce if her husband was physically cruel, incestuous or bestial, in addition to being adulterous. Following a divorce, she would also lose all of her property and potentially custody of her children. As a result, if a marriage was an unhappy one, women were unprotected and had few options of escape. In the Victorian era, we also see an increasing number of same-sex relationships, which I think is important to draw some attention to, and women entering into marriage-like situations with their significant other. 
Because women were seen as pure and innocent, it was generally accepted that girls might form attachments to each other, sharing a bed, exchanging love letters and even kissing. These were common occurrences in many schools and were seen as just a part of female friendship. We have to remember, at this time, the same vocabulary around sexuality did not exist. Henry James's 1885 novel, The Bostonians, actually inspired the nickname Boston Marriage for this concept. And there are many examples, such as Theodora Sarah Orne Jewett, who was an American novelist, short story writer and poet. She had numerous relationships with women and later would cohabit with Annie Adams Fields. These arrangements were often common among academic women like in this example. I think this is important to address, as not all women were seeking a heteronormative marriage arrangement, or even if this was generally the norm, we must not ignore different types of relationships, which are common now and did also exist in the past. Some women also chose not to get married and to live life with the unflattering assumptions tied up with spinsters. In 1889, the editor of Titbits, a British weekly magazine, asked single women to write in and explain why they aren't married. Some women express a desire to marry someone they actually like and love, evoking a sense that the desired qualities in the husband go beyond financial wealth and status. Quote, I do not care to enlarge my meanderie of pets and I find the animal man less docile than a dog, less affectionate than a cat, and less amusing than a monkey. And that was written by a Miss Sparrow. Such replies show a great sense of humour and also an independence of mind that these particular women do have a choice. Others point more to practical reasons, such as this example, quote, because I have other professions open to me in which the hours are shorter, the work more agreeable and the pay possibly higher, written by Miss Florence Watts, which points to the new employment opportunities of the late 19th century and how perhaps marrying is now less of a necessity and is in fact more of a burden. So in conclusion, the Victorian era saw the concept of marriage morph into what we know today in terms of wedding traditions and the overall blueprint of a wedding in terms of the ceremony and reception structure and the role of a bride and a groom in the service. The strict rules around marriage also seem to loosen slightly although families would still be involved and certainly opinionated about a match. There was definitely a greater emphasis on happiness and love in addition to status and comfort, particularly in the case of upper-class women. Despite this, on the whole, gender roles were still quite firm in the 19th century and the role of the wife idealised, portraying her as a saintly, perfect creature, a sentiment very much echoed in the rather saccharine Victorian paintings of that time, which restricted a woman in terms of independence. And also identity, I think often these sorts of roles are very stereotyping and it's as if every woman has to act the same, like a robot. 
and I think that probably frustrated many women who felt trapped in that identity and a lot of pressure to act a certain way. It's like you couldn't be human, you were sort of elevated to this angelic status. It's very interesting and um, I think you start to see that breaking down a bit in the later half of this century, which is encouraging. And of course, in the next century, we see that breakdown even more with the women's rights movement. So I guess marriage was not always perfect, although for the woman of the time, it may have been difficult to envision another life. We can never completely assume how they felt about their situation. And it's very easy to be critical looking back through a contemporary lens. It is, as I said, encouraging that towards the end of the century, we see different attitudes arising and women seeming to gain more agency with the rise of the women's suffrage movement. So it's a step in the right direction. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and this series. It was a lot of fun to research and I will have some accompanying images on our Instagram page, which you can follow at the Museum of Femininity. And yeah, I hope you keep an eye out for upcoming episodes. I hope you have a lovely day, whatever you may be doing. Goodbye. <laughs>